Hello everyone and welcome. Welcome to those of you here in the room at ODI today and those of you watching us online. Uh, welcome to this event, Migration for Climate Action, How Labour Mobility Can Drive Green Transitions, hosted by ODI, together with the Centre for Global Development and the International Organisation for Migration. We're really excited to be providing this platform today to be sharing some new research and ideas and to be facilitating a dialogue between um, different stakeholders on this emerging policy agenda, the opportunities that migrants can bring to supporting climate action and green transformations. Now, we know that the relationship between climate and migration is complex. And to date, uh, much of the debate, the research has focused on those who have had to move because of climate change, climate-induced migration, um, and, and related socioeconomic uh, causes. Of course, this is very critical and merits the attention and the policy and the discussion that it has received. But it's often been exploited in the public sphere. It's led to a, a negative public discourse around the relationship between migration and climate change. And uh, migrants have often been seen as victims when it comes to the climate change agenda. So very little attention has been paid to the opportunities can, that migrants can bring to driving climate change, uh, to, to driving um, green transitions and climate action, and to support societies that are on the cusp of making major changes. As the recent report from the IPCC, the International Climate um, Scientific Body on Climate Change shows, despite our much stronger efforts, uh, including since the Paris Agreement, the world is still not on track to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees uh, in comparison to pre-industrial pre levels. And this is a big challenge for us. So we know that if temperatures continue to rise, we're going to be um, experiencing extreme weather events and um, really horrible impacts of climate change, which will be financially and physically uh, very challenging to adapt to. So we have a small window of opportunity to make major transformations in our societies uh, coming, you know, when it comes to energy systems, transport systems, industry, buildings, land use and agriculture. And we really need different stakeholders to work together to make sure this transformation can happen quickly. And time is of the essence. So we need the people with the right skills in the right places. And right now we need to um, start addressing the transformation that we have to make. So with that introduction, um, let me welcome a fantastic array of speakers we have here with us today, presenting the research, but also the recent policy and practice and initiatives that are happening in the space where migrants can support us in um, green transformations. We will begin with two presentations uh, here in the room with me and then move on to our panel of six excellent speakers that are joining us online from different parts of the world. So let me start with Nathaniel Mason uh, to my left here. He's a research associate at ODI and the lead author of a report we published just yesterday on this agenda. He was previously a senior research fellow at ODI, uh, leading our work on water policy, sanitation and areas of climate change and has previously held roles at the World Bank and WaterAid. So over to you, Nat. Super, thanks. Thanks, Epek. And can I credit Epek as uh, one of my esteemed co-authors, along with uh, Alex Lowe, who's in the audience, and Joe Fairtag. Um, so just a couple of remarks on why we 
uh, asked this question or why we sought to reframe migration as potentially a positive force for climate and wider green action. Well, IPEX already alluded to the urgency. We've got eight years barely to uh, keep this 1.5 degree uh, limit on global temperatures alive, um, halving greenhouse gas emissions to do so, multiple other environmental crises, soil and water degradation, mass extinction events and so on. So the urgency is there. But the corollary of that is that if there's going to be action to do that, there's going to be huge disruption. And that's also going to affect labor markets. Um, we know that the low carbon transition, the wider green transition, is going to create jobs, it's going to destroy jobs, it's going to require new skills. And so we're going to need every tool available in the box, including those that lend flexibility. And labor migration is, is one such tool, but it's not being used to uh, deliver on its potential, at least not in any systematic or proactive way. If you say migration and climate change in the same sentence as Ipec alluded to, people will assume you're talking about climate-induced migration. And so our research aimed to tilt that narrative and allow migration to be seen as a potential positive force and also look at what needs to be done to unlock that potential in specific contexts, in four case studies in particular. Just uh, two caveats. One is that climate-induced migration deserves all the attention it gets and more. And secondly, that the research and the case studies ended up looking more at what could happen than what is already happened. We're here on those little islands of hope and excellence um, where this is actually being implemented to bring migration and climate change together in a positive way from some of our other speakers. But in general, it's early days as yet. So I'll quickly run through the case studies and then just turn to some of the key findings and policy implications arising. So the first case study we looked at was Bangladesh. And here we looked at internal migration. Almost two in every five workers in Bangladesh cities is uh, a migrant, mainly from the countryside. And that share is higher for female workers. And many of them have find, found jobs in the ready-made garment industry. Um, there have been efforts in that industry to green production. So this, in theory, would be ideal. You've got uh, high migrant workforce, you've got good greening efforts, but the trouble is that RMG isn't creating jobs on the scale that it used to. And so the case study looks at how Bangladesh might need to look to other sectors, so for example light engineering or waste and recycling, which is currently mainly informal, to grow green jobs for both long-term residents and new incoming urban migrants and upskill them for those jobs. The second case study we looked at was uh, Colombia. Colombia's uh, received uh, almost 2 million migrants from Venezuela, uh, many uh, in a relatively short period of time, and has been very progressive in integrating those migrants into society, into the labor markets and so on. It's also got some uh, ambitions with regards to renewable energy and transforming its uh, energy sector towards wind, towards solar and so on. And that case study, in that case study, we looked at whether there's potential to bring those two things together this uh, progressive stance on migration and the climate ambition by uh, providing access to Venezuelan migrants to skills training and job opportunities in various green sectors without disadvantaging Colombian workers. Case study three is uh, Malaysia. Apologies for jumping all over the globe with this. Um, and here we looked at the palm oil sector. Now, palm oil is not known for being particularly green as yet. The trouble is that it's, it's pretty necessary. It's central to global food production because it's such a productive uh, vegetable oil, essentially. Malaysia is a major producer, and a lot of that production has come thanks to Indonesian migrant labor. Many of those workers are undocumented, 
um, and they, t they often end up in quite exploitative uh, labor alongside Malaysia's natural resources being exploited. And that case study looks at the potential for a mutually beneficial skills partnership or talent partnership, whereby Indonesian workers could be trained in some of the skills needed to increase yields and reduce environmental impact. Some would stay in the Indonesian palm oil sector and some would migrate, hopefully, to better, more decent jobs in Malaysia's palm oil plantations. Final case study is the Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, DRC is, is central to the global supply of cobalt, which I'm sure you know is a central ingredient to uh, the electric revolution in transport and other um, sectors where energy storage is increasingly important. It's key to batteries. Um, and it's a country that has a large number of migrants, including economic migrants, about 100,000 of whom, uh, by some estimates, are from China. Many of them are working in the extractive sector. And so in that final case study, we looked at the potential for South-South transfer of skills that could help reduce the environmental impact of cobalt mining, improving efficiency, reducing some of the pollution impacts and so on. So with that little global tour, quite a disparate selection of case studies, what do we distill from that? What are the opportunities and needs? Well, the first is that the case studies do suggest that even though this is early days, there are some cases where there are already opportunities to support green transitions with migrant workforces, where they bring relevant skills. To tap that potential, government is going to need to take a lead, integrating migrants into their labour markets, recognising qualifications across borders, and taking maybe a proactive stance by linking up migrant organisations, business, local government, to match workers with the right skills to the right opportunities. Secondly, there are actually quite a lot of instances where migrants are already working in environmentally important sectors, but they are tending to be exploited, and often the natural resources, as in the Malaysia case, are being exploited at the same time. And the question is, does that provide an entry point to address both issues at the same time? If it does, it's going to need civil society and government to put pressure on businesses through uh, voluntary measures or regulation to address that dual exploitation. The third is that there's a need for new jobs, whether it's for migrant workers or uh, long-term residents in a lot of countries. Even though the projections are that the green transition is going to generate jobs, it's not necessarily going to do so um, at the scale and pace we would require yet. And so there needs to be a proactive stance on that job creation. Luckily, that aligns with a lot of other uh, policy agendas, such as export diversification in some sectors, in some countries rather in the case of uh, Bangladesh being an example. And finally, we need to foster green skills, both for current and for future uh, migrant workers. That's on the one hand about access to skills development before and after people leave, including through remote and digital technologies. But it's also about using mobility itself as an opportunity to upskill. So you think of circular migration practices, you might think of skill or talent partnerships, you might think of student migration, sorry. Um, and the final point, I think, is that um, government, what we saw through the research is that government uh, departments, international organisations are still tending to approach each of these domains, migration, climate and skills and labour separately, with a few exceptions. And they're going to need to engage and collaborate hugely more to improve policy coherence and to uh, bring the kind of innovative partnerships that we're starting to see to scale. Thank you.
Thank you, um, Nat. That was um, a great summary of a lot of work that we tried to cover, um, but very nicely, concisely summarized. Thank you. Um, so I'll turn now to Tawhid Pasha, who is the head of the UK office um, of IOM, the International Organization for Migration, uh, where he's been since 2007, quite a while. <laughs> um, and his previous roles there include uh, being a senior specialist on labor mobility and human development uh, based in Geneva, as well as providing support to regional offices and himself having worked in uh, IOM offices in Kabul, Cairo, and Amman, uh, and he has a background in immigration law. So over to you, Tawi, to talk about your recent work and some policy ideas. Thank you very much, Ipek. And uh, yeah, I've only been in the UK for four years working with IOM, traveled quite a bit, and it was quite interesting to hear, Nathaniel, and about your uh, focus on those three countries, because they're major countries, both of um, export and um, labor supply chains as well and a lot of work has gone into ensuring that protection element that you were talking about and it, it still needs to be done um, so i'd like to uh, speak very briefly ipec about uh, a paper that iom uh, co-authored with cgd the center for global development um, called enhancing the development impact of the uk's immigration pathways and this is part of a series of papers to um, really look at UK policy specifically and look at its migration policies and its labor mobility policies. And I'm not going to do justice to this paper. The authors are online somewhere, Helen Dempster and Sam, and we've got Martina sitting here. So I'm going to leave Helen and other colleagues, hopefully, to, to, to chime in online during the discussion. But just a very brief intro to the paper. So this paper was published in uh, this year, 21st of April, and the timing was such uh, that it came before the IMRF, the International Migration Review Forum, which is uh, coming up next week in New York, the first meeting of states post-Global Compact for Migration, which was signed in 2018, four years ago, and that's going to review the impacts and implementation of the Global Compact. And so we're looking at how we can explore some of the discussions and influence some of the discussions that are going to be taking place next week. Now, with the UK in focus, this paper looks at how the UK can promote global development through its migration schemes, immigration schemes into the UK. We all know about the evolving points-based system, which has been trailed for some time, and it's been in implemented um, for a number of years now. And we know that this points-based system ostensibly targets the highly skilled and those with financial incomes or promises of uh, high paid jobs to match. On top of this points-based system, we have a number of what we call bolt-ons. Um, so these are bespoke schemes that bring in agricultural workers, uh, seasonal agricultural workers scheme, uh, truck drivers we've heard of uh, prior to Christmas uh, when we were all fearing that we wouldn't get the uh, necessary presence coming in through the supply chain. And of course, nurses and the pandemic has shown that uh, there is this country, there is going to be a huge need for medical personnel over the next decade or so. Um, we also focused quite uh, key to this debate on the green economy and we were looking at these schemes and the development benefits that they accrue or in some cases the development benefits that are not accruing for various reasons what do we know we do know that labor migrants send home 
money. They accrue higher wages in countries of destination. The money they send back home is essential to the well-being of their families. They also invest in education back at home to support their families. We also know about the benefits to economies in countries of destination, filling labor gaps, increased tax revenues, job creation, despite what you might hear in the media. But there are other factors uh, of benefit as well, such as increased trade and diplomatic relationships, and crucially, the acquisition and transfer of skills in both directions. What are the challenges that we're facing? How do we maximize these development incomes? Well, uh, Nathaniel, you mentioned it already. One of the factors is protection. We need to get workers um, better protected through regulating, for example, recruiters and employers, not charging fees. Unlike, for example, the UK Seasonal Agricultural Workers Scheme, where visa fees, travel fees, health insurance are all being paid by workers. And let's have a look at who these schemes are actually targeting. So, for example, with, with, for nurses, we're looking primarily at women, young women, mothers with families. With the Agricultural Workers Scheme, more of a mixture, men sending money back to their families. How do we tailor these schemes to match their demographic profiles and to suit their demographic profiles much better? And of course, we have to focus on the money being sent back. And there's been a, yeah, we, we know about the initiatives on lowering remittance costs, but there's all, we need to start thinking creatively about how migrant communities as a whole how their investments back home can be maximized through cooperation between governments and countries of destination and origin. Have we thought about diaspora communities and their potential to invest in the green economy, for example? And I'll, I'll come on to that later since we're focusing on the green economy. And one of the key factors is how do we build skills? How do we ensure that there is a pipeline, a sustainable pipeline of talent to, to really ensure that there is uh, the labor shortages in countries of destination are being matched, but also that um, the, uh, the, the aspirations of countries of origin as far as fighting climate change are concerned and boosting the green economy are matched as well. And investment is required here in uh, multilateral and global skills partnerships. And with a focus on the green sector in the UK, the UK has set ambitious targets, as we know, uh, to achieve net zero by 2050. And this will require thousands of workers with green skills to undertake jobs in this growing sector. And neither those skills nor the relevant pipeline of talent are currently available domestically and, and with countries coming in as well. Immigration is going to be necessary to meet this demand uh, to help the UK meet its ambitious goals. So this paper comes out with a number of recommendations to maximize the, the benefits of uh, development and for the green transition in particular. And I've picked on just two or three of these recommendations. One is that firstly, the UK should embrace immigration as a solution to meet the green skill shortage, together with the domestic reskilling of workers. The government could take steps to facilitate the geographic mobility of workers, which requires, you mentioned it, portability of qualifications, harmonizing skills recognition, between countries of origin and destination. Secondly, the UK's immigration scheme should be focused on building skills in countries of origin that are needed globally. And the UK could take a leadership role in investing skill building 
and promoting the migration of trainees, contributing to the Greens transition. The Global Skills Partnership uh, is a model um, that CGD have worked on, IOM is involved. That can be particularly useful to this uh, and give the UK access to a sustainable source of talent while improving relations with other countries at the same time, providing safe and legal migration pathways. I think we're going to hear from colleagues on the Move Green initiative between Morocco and Spain, uh, one of the few existing mobility schemes focusing on green skills. And lastly, let's not forget the existing migrant communities in the UK, diaspora communities, the long-standing communities. They have existing networks and partnerships in their countries of origin. They want to invest sustainably. Many have the skills necessary uh, in the UK and they're already supporting adaptation strategies back at home through their remittances and monies they're investing at the community level in their countries of origin, helping to pay for more climate resilient uh, infrastructure and practices. They're also active on the political scene and um, uh, they can influence government, governments to pursue both here in the UK and abroad to pursue net zero. So we're missing a trick if we don't use them as key influencers and if we don't try and adapt sustainable financing uh, uh, to help them with their um, green ambitions. So that's the paper. I'm sure Helen is going to come in with more details. Um, looking forward to today's discussion on how we can foster what I would say is a uh, whole of society process where we really are including migrants to achieve that um, the aims of the uh, net zero strategy. Thank you. Thank you, Tawhid. And thank you also for bringing in some of the elements um, from your broader experience and linking the agenda around the green skills and labour mobility with some of the other challenges that uh, we're facing in migration more broadly and how there can be solutions that address both of them simultaneously. Um, so we will now move on to our excellent uh, panel of discussants uh, to start to hear about some of these ideas in practice. So let me turn to uh, Enea Stocco first, um, uh, who's from the UN Capital Development Fund, and he's the country lead and program management specialist in Ghana, with more than 10 years of experience in private and in development sectors, mainly in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, prior to this role in Ghana, uh, he worked at the UN Industrial Development Organization, UNIDO, um, and various other NGOs. And today he'll be telling us, uh, together with Gifty, his colleague uh, after him, about the, the most recently um, uh, project that he's working on, the Green Project, uh, which is different to the Move Green Project. We have a couple of green projects to showcase today, which is boosting green employment and enterprise opportunities in Ghana, uh, a four-year project from the uh, European Union, the Dutch Embassy in Ghana, the UNCDF, uh, and the Dutch Development Agency. Uh, the project aims to address the root causes of irregular migration through green and climate-resilient local economic development by creating employment and enterprise opportunities in agriculture, water, sanitation, um, and hygiene, as well as renewable sectors. So uh, a great example of the kind of initiative that, that brings these two agendas together. Over to you, Anaya, to tell us, um, you know, please do start with some of the your entry points to, to this project and to this work. What contribution do you think migration can make to bridging the skill and labor gaps as Nathaniel and Tahid were talking about, and, and tell us about the Green Project. Okay, that's great. Can uh, can you hear me? Yes. 
Okay, that's uh, that's that's great. Thank you, thank you so much for 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 the presentation and for the invite as well. I think uh, we have we were we we have been discussing about uh, about important important experts, climate change, uh, migration, not the engagement of of the diaspora as a resource, and uh, and and today I would like to uh, to present a concrete uh, experience that uh, UN, uh, UNCDF, together with our partner SMV, we are, we are implementing Ghana in two uh, specific regions. So um, we are implementing the, the Green Project, the Boosting Green Employment and Enterprise Opportunity in Ghana. And it's an action uh, that's uh, with the main purpose of, uh, of creating a greater economy and employment opportunity for youth, women, and particularly for, for returning, returning migrants. Of course, uh, an important component is job creation with a particular focus on, on the green economy, on, on, um, on, uh, on principles that they are focused on, on, on circular economy, so on the free uh, R, uh, reuse, uh, uh, recycle, and, and, and repair. How we we are doing that. We are doing that uh, using uh, and promoting an holistic approach. Uh, is a, a project funded by the EU uh, Trust Fund for Africa. So the migration component is extremely important there. So our targeting, the returnees, is, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is, is, is fundamental for us in our, in our intervention. How we are doing that through different work streams. One of that uh, is, uh, is, is, is promoting climate resilient local economies. So working at the local level with the, the communities in order to promote climate and resilient infrastructures. The second work stream is more focused on the skill uh, development part. So we um, conducted a study, tried to identify which are the needs of, uh, of our uh, beneficiaries and how we can promote businesses that they, that they are climate friendly, right? The third uh, important pillar work stream is, is related to promoting and increasing access to finance. So here, uh, the diaspora uh, target, the diaspora, diaspora segment is, is, is important. Try to channel their investments in, uh, in, uh, in, in the communities in order really to create a proper environment. And the fourth work stream is more focused on, on boosting, fostering uh, entrepreneurship. And so working more with, uh, with, uh, with hubs, for instance, uh, through, um, through incubation and acceleration program. Um, of course, uh, the skill uh, part is, is extremely important for Green. And uh, and that part, uh, maybe my colleague uh, uh, Gifty can 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 uh, um, elaborate a little bit uh, um, more and uh, going into the detail. Back to you. Thank you, and thank you for giving us uh, the background on this very exciting initiative. And of course, resilience is something we didn't uh, mention so much at the start. We talked about the agriculture and land use sectors, and we talked about. Uh, transforming the energy and, and uh, transport sectors, decarbonizing, but resilience, of course, and adaptation is a key part of 
uh, addressing the climate challenge. Uh, so we'll move on to Gifty Afi Kurjo now, who is a skills development advisor at SNV, the Netherlands Development Organization, uh, also working on this project with Enea, and she has previously held positions at the German Development Agency, GIZ, and the Japan International Cooperation Agency as well. Uh, so over to you, Gifty. Thank you so much, IPEG, and thank you, ODI, for putting this event together. I think this is timely also because uh, now we do not have time globally, all because of climate change. And thank you, Enya, for the intro. So basically, the green project is divided into four resort areas. And so SNV handles resorts two and four. And then um, our partner, UNCDF, where Enya is coming from, also handles resorts one and three. So I would concentrate more on resorts two and four because that's where a lot of skills uh, and capacity building rest. So for me, I always would want to start any conversation around skills and labor gap identification, first of all, with assessing the extent to which awareness raising has been done. I say this because in most of the communities, local communities that we have engaged in Ghana, it was evident that most people, especially artisans, who were already engaged in some green businesses or activities, felt that they had no place in the green transition. And so were quick enough to conclude that green is not for them, or green economy has no place for them. And so I believe that in order for us to really generate good conversation and look at how best we can solve this issue around climate uh, change, we need to first of all make sure that no one is left behind, especially the rural and peri-urban uh, communities. And here I think Green Project is doing a lot because we are so much in touch with the local communities and the local authorities where we get to interact and then share ideas and also broaden the scope of understanding of these rural communities. Because then if we don't do that, the understanding of green economy is so limited and they feel that they cannot contribute. And so for us as Green Project, that is where we started our conversation. And I can tell you that it's been so good that currently, if you go to any community in the Western or Ashanti regions in Ghana, anybody you meet in any of the localities that you work in can tell you what green economy is, what currently they have done as their individual contributions towards uh, where we are in terms of uh, climate change now and practical steps to the intervention of the project, the green project that they are taking to ensure that we all together and globally arrive at a more sustainable future. And so this is where I would want to start the conversation from. Now, going back to um, the issue of skill and how green is addressing gaps, I would say that um, generally it is obvious that um, high level technical skills, I mean, is, is an issue. Also looking at the uh, three sectors that we from SNV focus in, the renewable energy, agriculture, as well as um, water sanitation and hygiene, which is WASH. So these are the three um, areas that SNV through the Green Project is focusing on. You'd realize that uh, even now, if you want to talk about, um, say, housing or building, 
it is so key that we need um, professionals, okay, with high skills. So for instance, architects, um, town planners who are eco-friendly inclined or climate resilient focused to be able to come up with some innovations in the building or construction industry. Same for solar, same for agric, same for water sanitation and hygiene, especially waste management. And so for us, it's obvious that high technical skills is relevant. And even going into the technical uh, bits, you would also realize that we have two main categories of um, professionals that uh, are supposed to support this whole agenda of uh, mitigating climate change and then contributing so much to us arriving at a more sustainable future. So you, you would realize that we already have professionals with high skills who are in certain sectors or trade areas who may have to reskill or upskill to be able to tap into um, the green economy and also contribute meaningfully to globally getting us to a more sustainable future. Then we also have another group, which obviously is the, the, the group of students or people in training who are supposed to be privy to the issues relating to climate change, uh, have curriculum that really addresses or pinpoints them to uh, green entries, just so that by the time they are done with um, in-class session, hands-on practical session, they are well-baked and they are, their training is wholesome enough for us to say that these professionals are ready to contribute to uh, the whole conversation and addressing uh, climate change issues. Now, another interesting uh, finding is also the fact that um, digital skills is so key. And that's also a, a, an area we find so much uh, gap, okay? And I think that uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, it was so obvious that we cannot do without uh, digitalization because a lot of firms, a lot of businesses got hooked onto various digital platforms and um, tools that actually supported them to collaborate with their teams and also for businesses to connect with their clients and then customers. And so I personally believe that in the green transition, this will not be too different. And so I think we might have uh, lost the connection with Gifty. Um, we might be able to get her back soon, but in the meantime, I think hopefully she has uh, <laughs> she has been able to share most of the key elements. I, I think it was really interesting that she was talking about um, education around green skills, what they are, and, and the communications, because some, this is something that um, uh, I think is worth focusing on going forward as well in this agenda. A lot of people with different skill sets who don't know what green skills and green sectors are uh, could could benefit from uh, being educated and and uh, and be able to be excited about building new skills in that area. 
Right, now we'll move on to uh, Dr. Stephen Darwin, who's um, Assistant Professor at the University of Groningen, and he's the co-author of another recent report, lots of recent reports on this topic, uh, on uh, human capital and the mobility at the service of the green economy uh, for MIO Plus, the Migration EU Ex um, Expertise Initiative, which is a joint initiative funded by the EU and implemented by the International Centre for Migration Policy Development, ICMPD. Sue Stephen is a researcher and a consultant with over 15 years of experience consulting for organizations such as IOM, ICMPD, the UN Convention to Combat Desertification, the German Development Agency, GIZ, and, and others. He mainly focuses on climate, the green economy, migration um, in sub-Saharan Africa, as well as EU-Africa relations. So Stephen, over to you to share um, you know, drawing on your recent research and expertise, what contribution do you see migrants making to bridging the, the labor and skills gaps? And also, you know, what are some of the things that you found in terms of how we can take this agenda forward practically as well? Yeah, thank you very much for uh, this opportunity. And uh, I think uh, uh, most of the panelists have already raised uh, the important issues in regards to uh, migration skills and the green economy. Um, but what, um, as part of our work, the work that I, I did for the ICPND, we basically looked at um, how we could actually tap into migration to, you know, enhance or propel the, the green transition. And what uh, became apparent was that with the green transition, uh, different sectors will mostly be affected, and this will translate to also have uh, implications for. Uh, employment. And if you look at the different sectors that would mostly be affected by the green transition will be the agricultural sector, the energy sector, the automotive, uh, automotive um, uh, sector, and you talk about industry and uh, services. And when you look at these different sectors, the sectoral impact, or you have all these critical sectors that we talked about that will be mostly affected by the green transition, you also have a concentration of migrant workers in these sectors. What this will invariably mean is that um, most of them will also be, uh, you know, widely affected by the green transition in terms of whether they are able to, you know, upskill or reskill to be able to take up the jobs that will be created by uh, the green transition, or others will be, you know, will lose their jobs. But then one of the main aspects of the green transition is to uh, allow for, uh, other than job creation or sustainable or decent jobs, is to allow for inclusive growth. So what would then be the implication in terms of employment and all of that? That was what, another issue that we looked at. So the, we, and I think Tawhid uh, already mentioned uh, uh, about the global skills partnerships model and all of that and the contribution to development uh, and sustainability, not only of business, not only in the destination areas, but also uh, 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 the countries of origin. So one aspect that we we looked at or that became apparent that we could actually tap in terms of uh, migration has to do with um, the ongoing pilot projects that are being rolled out as part of the, uh, the EU uh, skills agenda. Well, as part of the talent partnership, there are still discussions as to how the talent partnerships will be rolled out in terms of um, uh, how they'll be rolled out. But with the pilot projects that are already in place, there are already skills partnerships where we have, for example, 
Uh, I think it was Tohi that mentioned the Move Green. We have the um, the Palin project that also focuses on uh, skills, uh, legal migration, or should I say regular migration from Morocco to uh, uh, Belgium, and then with the Move Green also from uh, Morocco to Spain, where you know skills training exchanges are also you know part of the uh, the migration scheme. Um, other than that, you look at cities. You look at cities in terms of migration governance. Cities are also playing a critical role. Other than the sister city relationships and all of that, we have city councils that are also playing an active role in terms of integration and also uh, 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 providing assistance to refugees. So as part of this ongoing migration governance regimes, um, the proposition was also for these uh, uh, cities, the role that they play, and in particular the uh, the mayor, the mayor's uh, mechanism could actually also integrate uh, as part of the skills training uh, a focus on the green economy, where migrants could actually be given opportunity or as part of the integration process, given some skills training, green skills training, and an, a, a typical example has to do with the employer uh, uh, Verde, I don't know whether I'm pronouncing it right, uh, program in Spain, where it offers, the program allows for skill, green skills training with a specific uh, focus on vulnerable groups, including migrants. And if you look at cities as well, they tend to be nodes for the concentration of migrants. When migrants uh, come in or migrant workers tend to concentrate within uh, uh, cities. Uh, so. Another area will have to also be in terms of uh, if we want to make cities sustainable, uh, opportunities are also there for uh, the extension of what green skills training uh, to all these migrants and refugees as part of the, the process. Other than that, you can also look at it in terms of skills transfer. We're not looking at the destination areas alone, but also the countries of origin because an important aspect, for example, uh, when you look at the EU Green Deal, it has an external dimension. And it, uh, in achieving uh, its ambition of net zero, it also advocates that or uh, you know, outlines that uh, it will do so in partnership with what is partners, external partners. So that will also mean that um, diaspora will be an important or critical aspect of this in terms of skills transfer. So not only focusing on highly skilled diaspora, but also looking at the uh, uh, the low skilled level, where you can you tend to have uh, 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 persons who are working, for example, in the uh, waste management or even persons with low skills. So that when as part of these uh, uh, initiatives in terms of diaspora engagement, you could actually. Uh, allow for skills transfer in terms of the green economy so that, uh, for example, as part of the, uh, what is the name, uh, this, uh, the green project in Ghana, for example, where we have the, ro the role of diaspora in supporting green startups and all of that. So these are some of the areas that we already looked at, uh, a whole lot of issues that we touch on as we go on with the discussion. But for now, I will just highlight, uh, give highlights of most of the issues that we addressed as part of the discussion paper that we wrote. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, and thank you for, again, picking up on some of the different aspects, including the importance of cities and the role of cities, um, and also mentioning the Move Green Initiative, which we will hear from um, 
shortly. Just before I move on to the next panelist, I just wanted to give uh, Tawhid a quick chance to respond to some of the things that we've heard from the panelists as uh, he has to uh, run to another event. And then we will come back to actually hear from the diaspora angle uh, from Onyakachi. But over to you, Tawhid. Thank you. Very interesting. A couple of things came to mind in the in the presentations that I heard. One is the investment in local communities back at home. Uh, and investment in technical skills is very necessary. Um, and that will further the green economies both back at home and contribute to that sustainable pipeline of talent. I just want to pick on a couple of examples here. One is um, uh, uh, when you were talking about the IPCC and about um, uh, the recent uh, COP26 as well came to mind. Disaster risk reduction in Bangladesh was a massive impetus. There was a huge initiative going on. And um, I remember some of the lead experts at COP26 uh, were actually saying, look, these countries have, uh, have a lot to offer to destination countries in terms of learnings. And so you, if you invest in local populations, each local member, uh, climate-affected person in Bangladesh, in their own right is now a disaster risk reduction expert. They know how to take action at that very first instant and mitigate loss and damage. So if you invest in green skills, like my, our colleagues who are saying, uh, Gifty and Enea, that if you invest in local communities and improve their ability uh, to, uh, to invest in sustainable agriculture, for example, that will have great benefits. Philippines is another example of uh, of, of uh, how they are producing nurses for the world labor market, and and the health sector is is another example that you could learn lessons from. It's not perfect at all. We need to be improving conditions, transferability of skills, recognition of qualifications. So that's just one reflection. The other reflection was from Stephen, um, uh, and he mentioned cities and the mayor's mechanism, and ODI is quite at the forefront of that and you know the fighting climate change is a common factor to host communities and migrant communities and with a common goal and a common fight you can really uh, derive the benefits of migration and improve social inclusion for example by really having uh, bringing people on board uh, towards fighting these common goals everyone wants to improve their localities and their environments and um, by investing in the abilities of these particular communities to be able to invest in the green economy fight climate change improve their local environment then there are some real win-wins here thank you very much Tawhid, and thank you for um, picking up on those uh, couple of um, areas so now we'll um, move on to Onyekachi Wambu, um, who's the executive director at AFORD, uh, the African Foundation for Development. Uh, and AFORD is a pioneer organization in the field of policy and practice of diaspora development. Previously, Onyekachi was um, still at AFORD as the head of communications and also as director of strategy and policy. And before the, joining the organization, he worked extensively as a journalist and uh, TV documentary maker editing uh, a newspaper and making numerous documentaries for leading channels. So 
Onya Kanchi, please do tell us, um, of course, your reflections on what's been said uh, so far, but also in particular about the role of Afford in, in this green project in Ghana and also the role of the diaspora community in, in supporting this agenda. Uh, thanks very much and thanks for the invitation to participate. Um, Afford has long been engaged in um, being a, a think tank and a do tank, so it's very important for us to do that kind of praxis work um, and our focus has been on how we engage diaspora resources to support development at, at, uh, in Africa. And uh, as everybody has said, the diaspora are critical stakeholders in, uh, across the board in terms of skill sharing, in terms of investment, in terms of policy development, and you know, just play quite a huge role. And um, you know, the recent figures have shown that um, diaspora remittances, for instance, to Nigeria uh, over the last three, four years have been almost as large as um, you know, the federal budget. So if we're going to be doing any of this critical climate work, then um, those remittances and, and other diaspora investment um, are key. We've been working on a West African um, investment, uh, or currently working on a West African investment project where we're trying to get the diaspora to invest in particular sectors. So it was really, uh, and one of our focus countries is Ghana, um, the others are Nigeria, Benin, and Senegal. So it was really good to be um, part of the SMV um, projects um, that focusing on renewable energy, agriculture, and wash. And we undertook uh, some research on behalf of um, uh, to look at the diaspora's capacity and some of the issues that they faced in doing that sort of concrete uh, investment into some of those sectors, um, those three sectors. Um, the research um, came up with, you know, it didn't really throw up a lot of new stuff. Um, it was pretty much the same kinds of challenges that people faced uh, invested in other areas, but there were some um, interesting points that people made. I'll read out some, some of the comments that some of those that we engaged with made um, in terms of what they would uh, be interested in seeing. Um, some of them talked about the need for a platform that the diaspora can access to get information, uh, which would then match them with local businesses in Ghana that they wanted to invest in. Um, they talked about um, having most respondents have benefited from some form of training, skills transfer, um, and uh, the businesses on the ground, and they had uh, knowledge of that. Um, diaspora members are not often aware of the opportunities that are available on the ground in, you know, particularly in this green sector. Uh, most respondents uh, uh, talked about collective fundraising from the diaspora and angel investors that uh, would help to raise funds to kickstart new streams of funding for the sector. Uh, and then investment obviously was coming through remittances and through diaspora friends and family. Uh, which is also difficult to track. So I think people are also aware of how do you um, produce data on this. Um, what we came away with uh, was the real um, sense that there was a lot of latent interest. Um, when you start to dig a lot of it, that interest is unrealized, and a lot of it is not particularly well informed. So there's a whole um, lot of work uh, to be done around that. And in terms of the 
we then actually worked with um, a group of investors to try and get them to invest in some of the local businesses. And uh, in the end, two did make those in investments and others were deterred, not because they, they weren't interested, but with, with some of the other issues that came up. And in terms of some of the recommendations that uh, were made at the end of that, um, there were short-term recommendations, which was to um, actually run much a much bigger pilot program uh, and run a, a, a scaled up research program that would look at all these issues around philanthropy, crowdfunding, skill sharing, investment, and other informal investment trends, um, and explore more deeply diaspora motivations, and then work with government key stakeholders uh, within the green economy ecosystem to facilitate capacity building um, programs. And then in the medium term, it was uh, about looking at how we established sort of venture building um, through incubator and accelerator programs, uh, and then develop and improve access to technologies, um, which will strengthen the relationship between diaspora investors and local businesses. Um, there was a big issue in terms of the longer term recommendation, which was about greater coordination between national government. Um, so the Ministry of Trade, the Office of the Diaspora Affairs, um, Ministry of uh, Agriculture, um, and across the different sectors, because I think people were finding that they were having to go to all the different um, um, departments and uh, or, or areas of government, and there wasn't a lot of joined up work. And again, that suggests um, developing a wider kind of communication strategy that will engage and mobilize um, people around the local green economy. Uh, and that would focus on the diaspora. So just to summarize very quickly, um, I talked about um, a lot, you know, uh, we, people wanting to invest but not being, not being able to invest. And one of the key issues was uh, around the investment climate, uh, interest rates. Um, uh, were too high um, for them. Um, and then there was also the issue about uh, kind of joined up national policies. Um, and then there was a, an, an issue around awareness raising and the people were very good at kind of demystifying the green economy and, and reducing jargon when they interacted with local um, businesses who were interested in this and were already doing work in that area, but didn't basically use the dark jargon of, you know, kind of uh, the green economy. And, and so there's something around how you demystify um, and reduce jargon in that sector. And then the work that we already do in terms of business skills, uh, developing business skills, business plans, a lot of the businesses wanted to engage, but again, um, uh, the business plans were unrealistic and uh, and they just needed capacity building in that in that area as well and then um finally there's just something about incense incentives that produce sustainable solutions a lot of businesses were coming in here because suddenly there were funds available and then once the funds run out they would move on to something else so something about how you produce incentives that would lead to systemic change, long sustainable systemic change. I'll stop there. There were a lot of really interesting things on a very practical level that, that emerged that, that I think um, 
reinforces what a lot of uh, the other colleagues have been speaking about. Thank you very much, Mukachi. And you actually also picked up on some interesting elements, such as the role of the business, uh, which we hadn't yet um, talked about so extensively, and also the need for greater coordination between the different government departments, but also with, between government and businesses and incentive structures for them. I think this is an excellent point in which um, I will bring in Julien Varla um, from the International Labour Labour Organization, ILO. Um, he is a technical officer in the Employment and Policy Department and uh, based in Geneva. Uh, and as you know, ILO brings together governments, employers and workers together. Uh, it's the only UN body to, to bring those three together to work on labour standards, policies and programmes promoting decent work for all. Um, and Julien works with ILO's constituents to promote skills partnerships for fair labour migration, skills for rural development, um, and so on. And it would be great to hear from you, Julian, uh, alongside your reflections on what's been said so far about um, the role of the, the relationship between business and governments and the types of initiatives, um, innovations, frameworks that are needed to ensure that we can progress this agenda um, at the national and international level. Over to you, Julian. Thank you so much, Ipek, and thank you so much for the invitation. It's, uh, I think, very important to, to discuss and shed the light on the, <coughs> sorry, on the positive that labor migration can bring for green transition. Uh, I think from what has been said and from the general consensus, consensus, we know that the transition towards greener economies is coming, whether we like it or not, and this would create immense disruption and also new opportunities in terms of technology, investments, and job creation. But to support these opportunities and to ensure that this transition is fair for everybody, uh, we need to have a skills development system that's like, uh, to be improved. So green skills development is critical, but I would agree also that uh, skills development in general would be uh, critical to ensure this just transition. Uh, first of all, new skills will enable the green transition as they increase productivity and enable more sustainable business practices but they will also serve as a buffers for, for workers to increase their income and also to access new opportunities in the face of evolving um, labor market needs. We need to recognize that the, the, the green transition would be about creating new green jobs, but also um, greening the existing jobs. As mentioned, there's still um, a huge imbalance between what the, what the skills are, what are the skills offered in the labor market, and what are the skills are needed uh, for the green transition, and for this labor transition, fair migration uh, is uh, a key opportunity. But I will say that there are some structural challenges also uh, within the countries themselves, both origin and destination countries, for this to be practically realized. Uh, there are two key challenges. That, you just, just just mentioned is the lack of policy coordination between education, labor, labor migration policies at the national level, but also at the international levels. And what we see also on the ground is that there is, in the least developed countries or the developing countries, there is very low institutional capacity uh, among training providers, employment services, and also uh, a lack of data about market information. So, so I think that the key step would be for countries to to start. Um, would be the identification of skills gaps to inform the skills development system and have demon-led skills training. Um, and this information should be shared within the countries with increased coordination, but also between origin and destination countries. 
um, so that the destination countries can inform their skill gaps and share it with the origin countries so they can adapt uh, their skills training and develop new employment policies. This would go hand in, we should go hand in hand with uh, strengthening the skills uh, uh, system and improving the capacity of the training provider, especially for technical, vocational, and educational training, uh, as well as the capacity to, of the, those institutions to connect with the labor market needs and adapt their training curricula and develop new occupational standards for the newly needed green jobs. Um, for all of this to be achieved, um, social dialogue between governments, employers, and workers, it will be critical. Uh, we, we mentioned a bit of the role of the, the business, and it is a, a fact that most of the investment needed to, for the green transition will come from the private sector, and they will also take in charge a lot of the upskilling of their workers to meet the new labor and uh, to the new uh, market needs. And depending on how well they succeed in this uh, transition and upskilling and new investment, we would have very different or different environmental out outcomes. Another thing that is critical to put in place is lifelong learning. Uh, because as the jobs become more greener, we need to upskill, uh, uh, workers need to be able to upskill themselves throughout their lives. Uh, finally, a critical part is also the, um, the development of skills recognition and skills matching mechanism uh, to, re to properly recognize the skills that the migrants can have so that they have the maximum productive impact on the societies. Um, we need to recognize that uh, migrant workers are especially vulnerable, vulnerable in terms of limited rights and protection. So it's critical to have policies that work, implement policies that include and aim at for improving the, the working conditions of migrant workers. Um, in the countries that we work, there's a lot of, uh, lot of times that migrant workers are working in informal contexts without social protection and without a uh, possibility to get new training to develop new skills and in very terrible uh, employment conditions. So the ILO is offering um, a few tools and guidance to this constituent within its multilateral framework for labor migrations uh, to uh, guide uh, countries in developing uh, employment and fair migration policies. Um, following the adoption of the Global Compact for Migration in 2016, the ILO has started working with the IOM, UNESCO, ITUC, and IOE to support government and social partners through the creation of the Global Skills Partnership on Migration. And some of the, uh, the work that has been done uh, uh, by the ILO at the intersection of skills and green jobs and migration include in West Africa, uh, the support of developing joint minimum standards between Ghana, Nigeria, and Togo, so that uh, migrant workers can have their skills mutually recognized in those countries. In Somalia, we are strengthening um, the Tibet uh, sector so that they can offer renewable energy uh, skills through public-private partnership. And inside, we're trying to strengthen the capacity of technical training institutes, including across different borders to develop, develop skills for green work, which are green buildings and infrastructure investment. So in conclusion, I would like to, to, to reaffirm that green skills are critical for building a sustainable and environmental friendly future and also point out some of the risk that uh, labor migration for the green transition can, can pose. There's a strong risk of brain drain and competition between migrant workers and local workers. There's also a risk that the, the, um, 
migration policies will only focus on the highly skill, most highly skilled uh, individuals, the ones that we can bring the, the skills that are already can immediately be actionable in, in response to labor market needs. We know that, um, unfortunately, uh, in developed, least developed countries, most of the people that are working in the sectors that are most uh, vulnerable to climate change, and those people are very limited uh, skills. And we see a growing trend of immigration from the youth. Um, yeah, that would be, that would be it. Thank, Thank you very so much. much for that uh, very rich presentation. And again, picking up on um, points that, that came up in our research as well. Uh, uh, and I've noted, for example, the technical vocational educational training and making sure that we're connecting with labor market needs uh, in a dynamic way, because of course, green skills are, as ILO publications talk about as well, they're constantly evolving and changing and, and we need to be on top of that. And thank you for also um, picking up on social dialogue and the business sector and various other key components. Uh, now, last but definitely not least, uh, we're going to hear from Edleni Tome Damata because uh, his initiative has already been mentioned several times. So he's definitely the most popular speaker. Um, and he's a project assistant at FAMSI, which is the Andalusian Fund of Municipalities for International Solidarity. Uh, Edleni has a, a PhD in human rights and development. And alongside his role at Move Green, he's a migration consultant and uh, also is teaching at the Universidad Pablo de Olavide in Seville. So, um, Eddie, please, I mean, feel free to make some quick reflections, but we do want to move on to questions and answers. So what we really want to hear from you is about this Move Green initiative, which is one of the very few examples of where we are seeing some of what we've discussed today in action uh, currently in its first pilot phase. So please do tell us. Thanks, Ipek, to, to, for having us in the, in, in the uh... And thanks for the colleagues that have, uh, have presented before me the key uh, elements that we need to consider, take into consideration when we talk about uh, green economy and 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 challenge that we have we facing in in the in the recent world in the in the, our contemporary uh, uh, context. So um, it's a pleasure to be here with, with so such a reference, such a. Uh, uh, a friend and, and sister that, that for me are, are also referent in terms of, of green uh, re reflection on the Africa uh, and European context. So um, I'd like to start saying that um, based on, the, on what uh, the other colleagues have already presented, I think that is before present or well, based on what the, you have already uh, said, I think that's even important that we need to to take into consideration also that uh, um, the relationship between South and, and North, let's uh, 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 take into account that uh, South in that case is not uh, just a, a geographic context, is also, as we know, a, a feminized, a racialized and a poorest context. So it can be also in the, in the North. So, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, that's uh, in that in that case in that dialogue, I think that is important that we need to go beyond the skilled migrant and brain drain and avoid brain drain. That we know that is a, a big challenge that we have uh, we we have been uh, facing in the, in the, in our uh, in our continent. So I think that we need also to go beyond the, this a concept of utilitarian revision of migration policies in in particular in in Europe. 
we need also to consider that equal dialogue among North and the South, not just labor force from the South to serve the global North. I think that is it. It's important to, to take into consideration that point of view. Another thing that I think that we also need to consider uh, uh, that as, our aspect that we also take into account in our project Move Green is the dialogue between the private and private institution that we you have already uh, mentioned that uh, is 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 a uh, is a key aspect in order to develop this green uh, uh, aspect as uh, Julien uh, have mentioned uh, the initiative from the green. A, a, a economy or green sector came from the private institution. We need also to diagnose the dependencies that of the energy provision of the North, the Ukrainian crisis we have seen uh, is one of the most important things that we, we, uh, we can also acknowledge that uh, challenge that we have in the North and also the consideration of the curricula of the training center and the university in the South Access, as well as the skill of young people in the green transition in uh, the South uh, uh, country. That, uh, that I think that is, 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 we also in the South, we have, even though we don't have this university uh, 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 capacity, we can also have this skill beyond this. So that's the main aspect that uh, we uh, take into account in this, uh, before develop this, this project, before implement this project, Move Green. Uh, Move Green is a project that uh, I, I thank you that you mentioned before this, our, our initiative and uh, invite us to present it here. Um, it's a project co-funded by the European Commission contracted by the Migration Partnership uh, Facility, the MPF, that is managed, is managed by uh, ICMPD, uh, that I've seen that uh, 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 my colleague have uh, experienced uh, work with them, uh, is a project that lasts uh, 36 uh, months, three years. We have started in September 2021. And uh, the partnership implementation of this project is basically in the in, 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 in Andalusia, in the south of Spain, and the north uh, of Morocco, uh, the region of uh, Tangier, Tetuan, and the Alusemas, and also in the, in the, in the context of the, the, the oriental uh, region. Uh, so we are the, the lead partner of the project as pharmacy as Andalusian fund of the municipality of our international solidarity in Spain, in south of Spain. And Amar Federation of, is a, as a, a federation of local authority of northern Morocco and the Andalusian uh, in the north of Morocco. So in that sense, uh, the local authority also play a, a big role in this in this pro project. And also Claner, that is uh, Andalusian Association for, of Renewable Energy that uh, from the private sector, play, play uh, 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 also an important role on the on the project. So the main purpose of the project, just to go fast, is trying to uh, catch up the time. Uh, uh, the project move is a circular mobility scheme that targets the green economy sector in Andalusia and north of Morocco, as I have said before. It provides professional training to young Moroccan um, uh, during four months stay in Andalusia uh, from. The first group we group we start we start in September this year. I seek to increase the employability and the entrepreneurial capacity 
candidate that provide also a play the path to language and cultural training and the technical training also in Morocco before came came to go to, to Andalusia. And also we have this reintegration support to Moroccan labor market when they finish their stay in, in Andalusia uh, to go back to to, to, to Morocco, it also seeks to strengthen public and private partnership at local and regional level to cross-sector cross, uh, knowledge and experience exchange activity between uh, Moroccan and the Spanish uh, 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 private sector uh, in order to, also to assure this sustainability of the project. So the key achievement to finish of the, uh, so far of this project are uh, analysis. We have also already developed a, 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 a diagnosis for the skill and professional profiles most in demand in the green and the renewable energy sector in Andalusia and the south of Morocco and the north of Morocco, uh, uh, sorry, uh, that we produce an impressive list of most in demand profession in the both uh, shore, uh, contact with public and and private university in Morocco and Spain in order to build this training curricula on the green economy. And, and the, this process, of, we have started uh, yesterday, this process of uh, selection of first uh, target group of eight in, uh, young Morocco that will be the beneficiary the first uh, of this day that, I, that I've, mentioned, I've mentioned before. So, uh, once again, thank to to having us in, in order to uh, present our initiative in our pro, in, the, in our in our projects. Lenny, and uh, thank you for um, making the time to share with us. And uh, just another plug for our recent report. We uh, have done a great interview with Lenny and his colleague Tuscar on the initiative and some of the details. So um, that's actually available on our webpage. If you scroll to the bottom, there's a great video where they summarize this exciting project, which is kicking off with its uh, first uh, group of graduates in September. So it's very exciting. Um, so with that, we now move on to the sort of open discussion and question and answer session of our event. Uh, for those of you watching online, please feel free to post your questions um, along with your name and your affiliation and where you're based onto the chat box and my colleagues uh, can read them out here. But let me also ask if anyone in the room has any burning questions and We've got one. Please do hold on for the mic. Um, thank you, yeah, thanks to the speakers and to the panel in the room for everything today. Um, I think that, yeah, as has been said, the impacts of labour migration, especially well-managed labour migration, on sustainable development is... Can you just is... tell us who you are, please? Sorry, I'm Lewis. <laughs> Lewis um, I work for the SCDO. Um, yeah, sustainable and well-managed labour migration has an incredible seismic impact on development. Um, I think it's been really interesting to hear what you've said about, especially using that to plug shortages in the labour market to do with green jobs and the green revolution. Um, and it's been picked up on by uh, the panellists, especially online, about the concerns of especially a brain drain um, when, uh, when speaking about this. Um, so I just wanted to know really, as this is something that I kind of have to juggle with quite a lot in uh, what I work with on a daily basis. Um, how can we solve this issue of a brain drain if especially there are such specialized jobs that are needed to counteract the issues that are kind of changing every day and will certainly have changed and have kind of so much more impact over the next 20, 50, 100 years? 
Um, so yeah, what can we do now to try and ensure that there isn't a brain drain in those coming up? Thanks. Thank you, Lewis. Um, I wonder if I should direct that um, primarily at Onya Kachi or if there's anybody else from our panel who wants to um, answer and, and Nathaniel as well, if you want to jump in. But uh, Onya Kachi, can we, uh, given you work with the Asperas, um, ask you first about uh, what, what can we do to prevent brain drain? Yeah, we've, we've stopped using the language of brain drain uh, and talk about brain circulation. Um, you know, individuals move for lots of complicated reasons and they should be have the freedom to move if they so wish for greater opportunities. I think the key thing for us is how do you then leverage and harness their uh, skills and resources if they still want to contribute to the countries of heritage. And, that's where we can actually come up with the kinds of structured programs that um, we've been um, encouraging and we've been trying to, to look at. So um, the other thing, obviously, that uh, we can do in all these areas is to develop um, the, the skills and um, the self-employment. I mean, a lot of people who stay behind, if you look at the economy, the way that those economies are structured in Africa, most of the people a vast majority are going to be self-employed in some form or other. So how do we then support them to set up businesses and support, uh, you know, through to business development initiatives and so that they can invest um, the, the means that they have um, in those businesses and, uh, you know, enable them to have a greater stake at home. So I'll, I would basically just make those two responses. Any other panelists who want to come in on that question? No, I don't see any hands. I've got Nathaniel here. I was just briefly because I think it's, it's a great question, but it's not just about the, the brain drain or um, brain circulation element. What I've heard from listening to the panel, and it chimes a lot with the research, is that reciprocity is going to have to be built into all of this from the start. So you you have skills deficits everywhere. Everyone everywhere is facing this very urgent need to decarbonize, to address other environmental issues. You have pockets of relevant skills everywhere, but there's not sort of some country sitting there waiting with an enormous skilled workforce ready to supply the global labor market. So it's got to be built in with reciprocity from the start. And that's um, potentially about addressing the, the brain circulation or brain drain issues. Um, that were just alluded to about engaging diaspora, but it's also about those kind of reciprocal forms of partnership, the sort of skill or talent partnership model, which are designed from the outset to bring benefits for both host, host and origin countries that need to be explored, I think, and, and are ideally suited to this because of that fact that this is a universal challenge. It's not a North versus South or some other dividing line type challenge. Thank you. Do we have any other questions in the room or any online at the moment yes um jamie do you want to read them out for us if you've got the mic yep sure so uh we have a question from megan rowling uh, who is a journalist for thompson reuters foundation um it's a sort of two-pronged question i'll read it out as one uh what would be the main avenues for taking some of these pilot projects to scale fast given there is so little time for addressing climate change and a backlash against migration in some global north countries. Um, the second part is, 
How do you shift the narrative to a more positive one that is linked to the green transition and plugging the skills gap? Thank you. Uh, so I think that with the first part of that question in terms of shifting to scale, I wonder if Gifty and Anea have some uh, words of wisdom from working on the green project, um, whether they could see these things at scale, even though the local aspect obviously came through very strongly, whether you have any um, advice on that. I haven't picked on one of you. Can I, shall I pick on Gifty first in terms of uh, putting, uh, making these projects um, be uh, able to be taken to a bigger scale? Okay, thank you so much, Ipek. Uh, I think that the green project as it stands now, for me, is a, a good blueprint for Ghana and then for other countries that could easily um, adopt and adapt what we are doing because um, the Green Project is said that it adopts or uses a more integrated approach where all key stakeholders are brought on board for this common goal. So you'd realize that, especially with the skills development, you have a push-pull-match approach, which we call the Opportunities for Youth Employment Approach which is very unique to SNV, I must add. And this approach uh, says that it is not enough to um, identify skills gap, but then when you do, you need to build capacity. When you build capacity also, it is not enough. You need to also find a conduit where um, trainees or service recipients get the opportunity to practicalize or have hands-on training. And so th this is where at the match, um, at the match, uh, stage, that's where we have a lot of public and private um, engagement or private and public sector actors coming on board to support the course. Then you have the final stage, which is the pool. Here, we also look at the entire ecosystem. Oh, we've lost Gifty again, but she did say it was the final stage of looking at the entire ecosystem. Um, and I, I wonder if there's anything you want to jump in on in terms of taking some of these uh, projects and, and building them uh, at scale and, and replicating elsewhere, if there are any lessons learned from the Green Initiative so far. So let me... Uh, I didn't know if, if I get the question uh, correctly. I'm so sorry. I, I'm experiencing problem with uh, with my connection. And maybe something that I, I would like to emphasize, highlight is um, is that with the green project we are even promoting a, a mechanism that is 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 called local. And what is important, what we are trying to do in close collaboration with our line minister in this case, Minister of Local Government and Rural Development, is to channel climate finance from central government to local authorities. That, I think, is it's something that, uh, that we are doing uh, in, in 10 uh, districts and we want to replicate in, uh, in, uh, in all the other regions uh, in all the other districts in, uh, in, uh, in Ghana. And that uh, is, is a way to, to create, engage more uh, returnees, danger in more uh, vulnerable people located in those regions, especially those in, in the north experiencing problems, security problems and, and such. I, I hope I, 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 I reply to, to your question. I'm, I'm so sorry once again for, for the problem I'm experiencing. Don't worry. Thank you. Um, so I just wanted to um, 
also move on to the second part of Megan's question, which was about shifting narratives. Um, but I, 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 want, I wonder if, Stephen, you have any comments, given your extensive work uh, and research and, and consultancy that you've done on migration and these topics, whether you have any uh, nuggets of wisdom from your work in terms of shifting narratives, uh, and potentially Julien as well, if you want to jump in on uh, some of these scaling opportunities. Well, uh, thank you very much. And I think um, in terms of narratives, I think uh, most of the colleagues have already highlighted that because there are already existing pilot projects that have uh, been successful. You can look at the, you can talk about the Palim project, you can talk about the TAM, that is a, uh, in terms of North Africa, uh, regional mobility, you talk about the Move Green, that, has already, that are already in progress. And so it's all about, you know, um, you know awareness creation, and also kind of projecting the opportunities at the green uh, transition, but also emphasizing the fact that to really tap into the benefits of the green transition, uh, you will need, you know, skills. But considering the fact that skills, uh, uh, we have skill gaps and all of that, then we have to be able to look in how far we can really tap into the opportunities that migration presents. It's not only about uh, brain drain, like uh, Kachi mentioned, it's about brain circulation. Because if you look at most of these pilot projects, they are designed in such a way that it's some form of, whilst you receive the training, there are also opportunities for you to be integrated to uh, 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 job opportunities as the place of destination, but also uh, as part of you know supporting partner countries to also enhance their green transition in terms of these skills that are being uh, persons that have been trained are able to return to their home countries to advance uh, the green transition. So it's all about rejecting the benefits of the green transition and building back better. Because if you look at the impact of, for example, the COVID-19, there's an advocacy and, and then return and reintegration. Um, people are also, the advocacy is that as part of effective migration management, uh, the advocacy is also for to reconsider sustainable reintegration. I'm sure Tawhid from IOM because they are uh, advancing the sustainable uh, reintegration agenda and the green economy with the potential to provide uh, uh, green and decent jobs uh, provides an opportunity to be able to facilitate not only climate change resilience and adaptation but also sustainable reintegration. So projecting the the benefits is also another way that we can ensure a positive uh, narrative in terms of the green transition. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen. Before we move on to uh, Julian for some final words, we actually do have a question that is uh, relevant to his work. So Jamie, do you want to share with us? So uh, we have a question from Helen, Helen Dempster uh, from the Center for Global Development. Uh, do we have a good sense of what specific green skills are in demand? and how far our training programs need to go to produce people with these skills. Has the education slash training community recognized the scale of this gap? Thank you, Jamie. Uh, so I'm going to ask Julianne to answer that question in just um, one minute, if that's possible. And in the meantime, um, I'd like to invite Marta Foresti um, because we do need to uh, make our closing remarks very soon, um, but I'll let Marta take her place while uh, Julianne do. Please share um, some of your thoughts on the aspect of sort of green skills. Um, do we have a good sense of what the skills are in demand and how far do training programs uh, go in terms of producing 
people with these skills. Sure. I would like just to quickly chime in also on the issue of scaling up of the, the project. It's true that scaling up from a very successful pilot to a full-blown national or international program is always a key challenge, a key issue. Um, just some thoughts on the one of the key obstacles is the lack of funding. Uh, so what we have we have actually experienced in uh, some specific occupations is that uh, the employers in the destination countries will finance uh, partly the, um, the training of the prospective migrant workers. So this is a, an area that can be explored also. And also in terms of scaling up at the national level, I think uh, political and also employers and workers buying is critical. So the importance of social dialogue at the very early stage of the, the pilot to ensure that A, there's uh, interest from uh, all the, 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 the partners and that they, they would, there are, B, there are clear benefits so that they would support the actual scaling up of, of the project. And now, very quickly, regarding the, um, the green skills and the gap that was mentioned, unfortunately, um, no, we have very little data available. There is, in the most developed country, we have some idea of um, where, the, where do we, we stand, what we need. But a lot of this is also for prospective technologies that haven't been invented for jobs that still that just don't exist. So we can just uh, prospect and um, forecast um, the best as we can. And in the medium developed or least developed country, there's definitely a lack of data. So we have almost no visibility, even in terms of migration, in terms of uh, occupation that the migrant workers uh, are employed in. So there's definitely need to to uh, have to unblock, unblock, unlock some funds to get more information to have properly market-led um, uh, skills development system. Uh, what we are we're seeing is that the, the training providers, the TVET, or even the universities, they are they are in the medium developed or least developed countries. They have access to um, plan out uh, to surveys conducted by the government every five years or even even ten years, and this is the the basis on which they are operating to design their training. So it's a big issue. Thank you. Thank you very much, Julien. Um, so just before we close, I would like to hand over now to Marta Foresti, who is the director of ODI Europe, and she's spearheaded ODI's uh, work on migration, the human mobility initiative here at ODI. Uh, she's taking over the very challenging role of summarizing and thinking about the next steps from me. So that's fantastic. Thank you, Marta. Thank you, Ipek. And guess what? I decided not to do that. I decided. <laughs> uh, so I really there's one thing I want to talk about and that's political narratives uh, because if I've learned anything working on migration in the last few years is that that matters and trumps everything else and so I thought if one wants to make the point about narrative maybe my best bet is to tell a story so I was coming here and trying to give some sense of the next step for IMRF next week but instead I'm going to tell you a little story that hopefully uh, will help resonate on why everything we're discussing today in relation to the potential of migration for climate action um, will resonate. And so my story has a title. The title is A Wake Up Call. Um, and the story starts in early 2015, when the development community, which means us in this building, all of us at I, friends across the road, then DFID, today the FCBO, all the NGOs, colleagues in, um, in a number of countries implementing development programs, this OB community was fundamentally ignoring the fact that people move as part of what their day-to-day -day job 
was. Migration was just not a topic in the landscape of development work. And there were a small group of, you know, of experts who were interested, but it was definitely very far from mainstream. And what's curious about it is that, of course, everybody understood back then, as, of to, as they do today, that the movement of goods, on the other hand, is terribly important to determine development outcomes. But the movement of people was not um, considered um, uh, you know, so central. Fast forward towards the end of 2015, the development community is definitely has migration as the agenda. There is no agency on the planet that now does not have at least some kind of quickly put together unit dealing with migration. They're beginning to wonder how to, you know, allocate aid. What the new that code could it be to, you know, to give money to address the reality of migration? So what happened in the meantime? Well, of course, it was a big crisis. A lot of people died in the spring and summer 2015. Um, and in fact, here, particularly in Europe, well, there, here in Europe, uh, we had the so-called uh, European migration or refugee crisis, depending on what you, how you prefer to call it. So was this a case where a crisis was put to good use to actually you know, turn around a, a situation that needs addressing? You could say so, because by September 2016, the member states of the UN gathered in New York, they agreed the New York Declaration, and after that, on, on migrants and refugees. And two years later, they approved two global frameworks on migration and refugees. And particularly, the one on migration is the first ever global agreement, global framework ever to be agreed by the UN member states. And believe you me, they have tried uh, before. Um, and as I said, you know, migration is now a priority in many development programs and development agencies. So, is this a success story? From a political narrative perspective, not at all. And we have failed in many ways to address that. Why? The first is because we did not anticipate how much something that came on the agenda as a matter of crisis emergency, in fact, humanitarian um, crisis for that matter, all the rhetoric about the invasion um, of uh, that you know, was coming along with migrants and refugees. We did not anticipate how much that narrative was going to take hold politically. We've seen so many elections being won at the back of that narrative. And for us to try to walk that backwards, to sort of to correct that narrative by making the case often you know, wrongly labeling as a positive case that actually there is something positive to say about migration and that actually those people might not be that bad after all was really hard and it still is today. And we got a little bit trapped into this. On the one hand, riding that wave of creating a sense of urgency and emergency for something that needed to be done, but not being able then to, you know, always falling a little bit behind on the narrative. And the second one is specific to development and migration. So very, you know, as migration became a thing, very quickly we started to talk about something called the drivers of migration, right? A very technical term. What we meant is fundamentally two things, that people move because of poverty or because of conflict, roughly. And we created this narrative that there are people who are entitled to protection because they escape uh, um, conflict and those who escape poverty, well, you make up your mind about whether they deserve their protection or not. Obviously, development is what tries to address and resolve poverty. And so while we began to investigate the nexus between development and migration, and that includes us, we let that narrative take hold that as long as people develop you know, over there, and obviously as long as they receive some aid to do that, we will be able to reduce migration. Guess what? The, the evidence suggested that exactly the other way around was true. But by the time we tried to make that case, once again, we were a little bit late. And it's very difficult to hold in people's minds both truth, especially when they 
kind of contradict one another. So I'm exaggerating here, of course, and we just heard how much has been happening. There is, you know, I'm delighted that all this work on skills partnership is happening. But when it comes to climate, as you said at the beginning, this has already been exploited and the window of opportunities is short. So we've got to learn from you know, the, those lessons and in some ways this, the failure in relation to migration and development to try to get this narrative on climate right. So the crisis vocabulary is already dominant. So what can we do to revert it to some extent? The first relates to what we just heard about pilots and scaling up. Let's not do that. Let's not wait until we can demonstrate these pilots can be scaled up at the national international level because it's not going to happen. But let's actually use the pilot as nuggets where we can actually tell our stories about in practice how much the green economy is already in desperate need of particular skills or how in practice is already delivering. Let's not get too worried if the evidence is probably still not very conclusive. I'm sure it's not. But we know enough about the fact that people movement can lead to development outcomes to know that migration has the potential to contribute to the green transition. So let's not worry now about scale up and let's try to speak a bit less about projects and a little bit more about what we're learning from it. The second, I think we need to tag along with particular crowds in the climate debate. You are the expert, correct me if I'm wrong, but obviously there is a lot of, you know, of, you know there is a lot has been done to create a sense of real urgency around the climate crisis, but there is also now things to be done. We heard about the fact that net zero can only be achieved only with more migration, not less. So let's try to almost, you know, become friends with the people who are working towards what would it take to uh, promote the green transition and try to create with them space for that and perhaps be less seen in the company of those who rightly have a role to play in, you know, in um, advocating for a real sense of emergency crisis because when it comes to migration, there is nothing like a crisis to get a sense that people are not wanted and will continue to be not wanted. It's very, very difficult to then say that those same very people are the ones that you really, really need for your economy. Um, I had a third and I, I forgot it, but I think that's enough probably to give you a sense that I think there is enough to be learned. And my last, very last word is actually a word of thank you to EPEC, Nat, Alex and Joe, who are the authors of the report. We started actually a few years ago, so we were actually quite early on. And actually, we should actually mention our colleague Leo, who in a room in this building said, you know what, we should do something about the fact that the fact that people move and the workers, you know, who move can also contribute to the green transition. A couple of years later, we've done the research and we're now with you all online and in the room um, trying to actually make some progress. But we really need to go to New York next week and then most importantly to COP in November with these messages and with a bit of a plan to not talk about these projects, but to really try to make some, you know, to, to learn from the mistake and not let this manipulation go much further than it already has. Thank, Thank you. you, Marta. And and it's actually very serendipitous, just as final couple of words from me, that the, the international collaboration coordinated response to migration, which began as a result of 2015. 2015 is, of course, the year that the Paris Agreement was signed. So I think the stars have aligned for these two agendas to work hand in hand. Uh, we just need to get going because we are on a strict timeline with regards to climate. Um, what remains for me to do is to thank uh, my speakers, um, Nathaniel and Tawhid, who's uh, run off to talk in another event, uh, hopefully about this agenda, uh, and to uh, our panelists, who have brought in such important nuggets of advice and, and also uh, drawn from their everyday experiences, their projects and their expertise. Let's 
hopefully uh, continue this conversation, bringing others in as well, uh, so we can start acting quicker. Can I also thank Anna, Jamie, David, and everybody who makes this incredible hybrid and meetings Rob, happen, and, and Rob, yes. because it's, and it's not easy, and, and we are getting quite good at it, so thank you very much, guys. And thank you to CGD and IOM as well for partnering uh, with us for hosting this event. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.